loneliness can come because I'm feeling disconnected from the people around me. And loneliness is also because I can feel disconnected from myself and my inner parts. And mostly that is the cause of loneliness, because if I feel connected to myself, even if I'm not around other people, I may feel a little lonely. I may miss the company of others, but I won't feel that like deep, deeply dark place of desperation in my loneliness. The internal relationship I have with myself, the internal connection I have with myself is of primary importance if I want to address loneliness. I'm Esther, and you are listening to On Your Own, a podcast for Jewish girls living away from home. Each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you confidently navigate life on your own so you can achieve real growth and independence and take ownership of this foundational stage of your life. For additional resources, tips, and to stay up to date on future episodes, sign up for the On Your Own newsletter, linked below in the description. Looking forward to spending some time with you today. And now, to this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to On Your Own. My guest today is Devari Nussbaum. Devari is an integrative psychotherapist, health coach, and host of the Hasidus Through the Eyes of the Psychotherapist podcast. In today's episode, we discuss Devari's personal journey that led her to her current career, the root causes of sugar cravings, how to deal with loneliness, what emotional regulation actually looks like, positive versus negative distractions, and much more. I have been a huge fan of Dvari and her work and her podcast for a long time, and so I was very excited to have her on, and she absolutely did not disappoint. Dvari has the way about her of being able to explain kind of lofty, difficult, therapeutic ideas and concepts in a very, very practical, relatable way. She almost makes you feel like you're in, like getting to sit in a session with her and see just what kind of things are discussed and worked on in a therapeutic environment. Specifically, we discussed it as it relates um, to emotions. And one of the biggest things that I, that like leapt out to me from the conversation was when Dvari said that our emotions and all the different layers that come with them and the you know the judgments that we have about them and the thoughts that we have about our emotions are all like little children within us that need to be seen and recognized and then you know we need to decide what to do with them and then we have the adult and the idea of bringing the adult into the room but like into our own lives and that's basically what this conversation is about like how to bring the adult into our inner world to be able to make some sense and order out of the chaos that's going on inside. And, you know, when you leave home for the first time, there's a lot going on inside. There's a lot of strong emotions coming up, um, maybe a lot of judgments on those emotions and a lot of thoughts, negative thoughts, strong, maybe negative feelings. And, you know, learning the tools to be able to bring that adult into the room and learn how to hold ourselves through these difficult emotions is huge and why really teaches us how to do that today so i'm so so excited for you to hear this podcast share it with a friend if you find it useful let me know what you think i always love to hear your feedback and let's get to the episode (music) 
looking at the work that you do, I got really curious and I wanted to find out from you just a little bit about what motivated you to kind of become a psychologist and go into the fields that you work in, because it looks like really interesting what you're doing. So I wanted to hear a bit about that. That's a great question. <laughs> it's a long story. Um, so I think I, I uh, to begin with, I had an eating disorder when I was a teenager. But it didn't just begin with my eating disorder. There was obviously my experience of life up until my eating disorder that led to my eating disorder. And my eating disorder was really my very big driver to try and figure out how to heal because I was extremely distressed by it. It ruled my life and basically 99.9% of all of my thoughts throughout the day was about food. It got in the way of everything, all my, all my relationships and my capacity to function in the world. It came along with OCD. And I basically just felt like I was living in some kind of hell and wished I was dead all the time. Wow. And I kept trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this? I have to fix it. I have to fix it. And so I kept on looking for things. I read a whole ton of self-help books. I went to a whole different bunch of therapies. I was just looking and looking and looking until I found, when I was 18 years old, a book that actually just changed my whole perspective on reality. And this was the first time I actually understood that there was something other than self-hate to drive me in life. Um, it was a book called When You Eat at the Refrigerator, Pull Up a Chair. Hmm. And Never heard of it. It was like a novelty to me. It was written by Janine Roth. Until then, I literally just was one big lump of self-hate. Wow. <laughs> it's like that was my existence. And um, this was the first time I had actually read anything that gave me some kind of perspective on that might not be the case and that maybe I can listen in and hear what's going on inside of me and there might be parts of me that are in pain. Um, and so I, I went ahead and I did what she suggested in the book and it helped me somewhat on the emotional level. It definitely helped me, but I was still struggling with food on a practical level. Um, until I discovered, or I read a book called healing with whole foods by Paul Pitchford. And I started changing the actual food I was eating. And I started realizing that there was a massive impact in the actual food I was eating to the way I was going to feel emotionally, mm. which was like an insane discovery that I was about 20 years old. And I changed the way I started eating and my healing disorder completely disappeared. I, together with the emotional work, but it wasn't it, the emotional work alone, which I was doing for two years before I came across changing the way I ate, wasn't enough to get me out of it. I still would go back into it when I was in stressful times and the same sort of cycles in my mind and the same physical experiences in my body. Um, once I changed the food I was eating, my headspace like cleared completely. I barely ever thought about food. I like just ate when I was hungry and I was fine. I was happy um, around food. Like I could eat this, not eat this, didn't matter to me. The whole mind space of should I eat this? Should I not eat this? How many calories are in this? Is this going to help me? Is this is, to lose weight, to gain weight? Just did not come into my radar anymore. It was just like, does my body want to eat this food? 
is this food going to make, like, do I want it? No, then I won't eat it. Do I want it? Yes, I'll eat it. And I'll be present when I eat it and enjoy the food. And that was basically a massive, um, like, light bulb moment for me because so many people had told me you don't heal from an eating disorder. Mm. So many people in my life had told me that you're going to struggle with this the rest of your life. And I was like, hey, I just healed my eating disorder. Wow. This is like, this is a novelty. Yeah. (laughs) I want to teach people how to do that. I then got married. And my marriage was um, a very unhealthy marriage um, for many reasons. And I got divorced at the age of 23. And another thing that came up for me was like, how did I miss so many red flags? How did I not know like, because there were so many, I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. I kind of blamed myself and went back into that cycle of blaming myself for the issues in my marriage and not realizing what was actually happening. And of course I had parts that I was responsible for. Absolutely. But there were many things that I didn't even know, for example, what mental illness looked like. And my ex-husband had a mental illness and I didn't know that it was a mental illness. I just thought that I was a bad wife. And so he's acting this way, you know? So there was like a complete, just un, just literally cluelessness about what on earth was going on here until someone actually came and told me that this was a mental illness. And I was like, what? What even is mental illness? <laughs> I just like was so clueless. And so when I got divorced and I, and I was a single mother with three kids and I thought I'm never getting married again. I was like so traumatized from the experience. I'm never getting married again. But I, my kids are going to be in school in four years from now. And I want to do a job that like I really enjoy and um, that I can do something useful in the world. So I had two options at the time. I was either going to study nutrition to be able to help people with food from the from eating disorders from the perspective of healing foods, mm-hmm. or I was going to study psychology to help people from the emotional perspective because I knew that they needed to come together and I wasn't sure which one to study first. I decided to go with psychology because... I was already working with healing foods. I had already been working as an apprentice with somebody who who used to diagnose people and give them healing food diets. And um, I would go and cook the food for them. And sometimes I would go and cook the food for them and I would come back and the next day to cook their next day's food. And they hadn't eaten the food from the day before. And I would like think to myself, why would someone invest so much money in hiring, hiring a private chef and then not eat the food. And I was like, there's some psychological stuff going on here. This is more powerful. I have to understand that first before I can then, you know, you could tell anyone what food to eat that will help their body to heal. But if they have emotional, psychological blocks to it, it's not going to go anywhere. So I went to school and studied psychology. I then spent my first, like, um, my um, my practice years, like the years I had to, my placements, working with women who were victims of sexual abuse and of domestic violence. I then went and did a course in nutrition as well. And I started running retreats for women and teaching what emotional health looks like and how to integrate, you know, how to use food for healing purposes and also psychology and chassidus. And it all kind of just saw it all as one continuum of the same thing, working from like body, body, emotion, mind, soul, how to bring everything into balance and I ran retreats that I was teaching this from all the different modalities, like an immersion experience. And I just, and then I started teaching classes and working with private clients and just kind of continued to do what I'm doing and, and building on it. So that's really, that's my background. That's my history. Wow. Um, 
You're welcome to ask any question. Yeah, that's a mind-blowing right. story. I have a lot of questions. So the first thing that came to mind was at the beginning when you said that when you were 18, you read this book that changed your life. And I was wondering if you think if you'd read a book like that, let's say when you were younger, maybe st you know struggling with similar things, but just a younger age, if you think it would have had the same impact, or do you think that that process of actually transitioning into that age um, might have might have helped have that impact. The reason I'm asking is because I also had a lot of struggles actually specifically with food. And then when I was 18, I read a book called Intuitive Eating, also just changed my life, um, turned things around slowly from then. But I've thought about it a lot and thought that if I had read that book two years before, it's possible I would have read it and just been like, yeah, not for me. That doesn't apply to me and kind of moved on. So I'm wondering, do you think there's a connection there? Do you see some sort of connection also just with the age you were coming into? I, I think I think there's definitely um, a certain level of like maturation where you can actually hear information differently um, as you grow up. I also believe that like God is very much instrumenting the timings of everything on our journeys and that exactly at the moment when we are supposed to receive information, that's when we receive it. And everything that happened up until that point is never a waste of time and is never a waste of energy or effort. You know, I think a lot of times we have this experience with people where we're working in therapy for a certain amount of time and then the person has a breakthrough, breakthrough or something happens or an awareness or they have um, a different type of therapy or a new experience and they're like, wow, why didn't I do this earlier? And I always, I always say to them, there's everything you were doing until now was preparation for this. This was what, like preparing you to receive this moment. There is no such thing as a waste. When we put in effort in any area of our lives, even if we don't see fruit, it is all hishtadlas. And God doesn't necessarily send success in the same area that we do hishtadlas. Sometimes you can do a lot of hishtadlas in one area and then like, boom, in one second you get success in another area, completely different. And it's very easy to like create like the mindset of like, you know, what was that all about? Mm. But it's all connected. And so I, I think for some people, it could be that they could read a book like that earlier and it could have the same impact. And for other people, they could read that same book at the age of 18 and it still not have any impact. So I think it's a lot to do with our personal journeys and how when we're ready for something and what's um, when, when we're, you know, the time is right, basically. Mm. Yeah, that's been a big motivation for this podcast, which is for girls, you know, around 18 when they're leaving home to kind of give them little tidbits mm. of options from all different areas that so that if one of them speaks to them it can lead them into that direction so what I found sometimes is those of yeah. us who merit to get exposed to the the beauty of healing psychology or even nutrition some usually it has to have been if we're young because of an extreme circumstance and those of us who are kind of floating and surviving don't get that opportunity so the fact that you've taken all of this experience you've had and channeled it into something you can share on and work with people um, and also coming onto podcasts to share it, you know, more generally, I think is just huge. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into the things to talk about. So I wanted to talk about emotions, but you mentioned something so interesting I didn't even think of asking, which is the connection between food and emotions. So I definitely would want, I didn't even think of bringing mm. that as a question, but then you said that for you, you started to realize that there was a huge connection then. You changed the way you were eating, which then changed that. So before I go into the questions, I wanted to hear what you have to say about that, because that's pretty fascinating. 
So, so my kind of perspective on eating before I came to the understanding of the kind of food you eat, how it impacts your body, was to eat um, minimum amount, like to eat um, minimum, minimum, sorry, minimum amount of calories as possible, and to eat proteins and fibers and vegetables, um, but carbohydrates were just wasted calories unless you were eating something that was yummy, like sugar, and then fine okay you ate it because you like the taste not because your body actually needed it like your body doesn't need that that was kind of the information that I believed based on reading the back of cereal boxes or list like reading people's fad diets and that was the information that was available to me right so when I came what I came to realize is actually also I used to eat a lot of artificial sugar and things that had MSG in them and chemicals and, and things like that and what I came to realize is that those chemical compounds actually kind of first of all what artificial sugar does is it sends information to your brain because of the sweet taste that carbohydrates are coming so your stomach starts to actually prepare um like insulin and also um like the 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 stomach juices that are needed to digest sugar but sugar doesn't come so the brain gets the message that actually there's a famine right that that we thought there was food and there's no food and it starts to store all sorts of like um First of all, it starts to store everything you eat, like as fat, fat storage in your body. But also your um, you start to crave more sugar. You start to crave more. So it like creates this like extremely um, difficult position to be in, which means you're craving sugar all of the time. And you're also telling yourself you shouldn't eat sugar all of the time. So then you become a bit obsessed with food, right? And what I came to understand is that complex carbohydrates, especially whole grains, and um, legumes and things that are um, that grow in the ground that are in kind of seed form. For me, what I came to understand this is not for everyone, but for me, what I came to understand is extremely grounding in my body, and they they would satisfy me to such a deep level. I could eat like one bowl of like brown rice and lentils, and I wouldn't even think about food for six to eight hours afterwards. And I realized that the re- when I ate a bowl of cereal, for example. I, an hour later, I was starving hungry. And I was thinking, and then I thought, I can't eat for the next four hours because, like, I just ate breakfast. I have to wait for lunch now. You know, that was again the diet mindset. But I'd spend the next four hours obsessing over what I'm going to eat for lunch because I was so hungry because the food I wasn't eating wasn't even nourishing my body. There was no nutrients, barely any nutrients in it because it was all like packeted food and. And it was like, you know, the food that I could see the calorie content on it on the package. Um, and it was diet food usually. So and and so what would happen is, is I would be so hungry, I'd then go and binge on huge amounts of sugar and food. And then I would starve myself afterwards because I'd be like, you bad person for eating all that food, you disgusting human being. So now you're not going to eat for three days. And this was just like a cycle I got stuck into. And then I was so starving, I would binge again. And it was just like this. And when I started eating this food, like I'd eat... Um, the main chunk of my food started becoming just root vegetables and whole grains and legumes. I was like, I didn't think about food. I wasn't hungry. I felt energized. I felt full. And if I wanted to eat anything else, if I wanted to eat like a piece of cake or some ice cream, great. And I would eat that intuitively. Like I think Janine Roth's book was very similar to the intuitive eating thing, which is check in with your body what it wants to eat and then eat it slowly, enjoy the taste and be present with it while you're eating it when you've had enough stop. And I learned how to do that. So then I wasn't like thinking that now I'm eating ice cream, which is a bad food. I have to eat the whole pot of ice cream because I'm never going to eat ice cream again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, which was like, again, a thought process I had. 
And I realized I can eat ice cream whenever I want. So enjoy and enjoy this moment. And if I, when I'm done, I'll stop and I can eat it again in five minutes from now and five days from now, it doesn't matter. But I didn't feel that desperate urge anymore for it. So I wasn't so afraid. I thought if I let myself eat, I would eat the world. I didn't realize that my body had its own wisdom and that if I tap into it and I nourish it, I'm really not going to eat the world. I really don't want to eat the world. Like I, I didn't know that because I, I hadn't had that felt experience in my body. And so when I started eating more of these foods, these the, the, the whole grains and legumes and root vegetables, just my whole, also my anxiety levels went down tremendously. Mm. I felt more grounded. I felt more present. So much of my anxiety was around food and also sugar has a massive impact on anxiety levels mm. and also MSG create, makes you crave more food. And so many, like so much in these chemical things were like really messing with my cravings and my whole experience of of food wow. so that all went away and I was like well wow and obviously all the emotional like baggage that comes with it yeah and, and people spend so much time sometimes in therapy just addressing anxiety but actually so much of the anxiety would just go away if they if they learned how to balance their body on a biological level wow um like just the food like when you're feeling your body feels nurtured and um, and um, not going on like in the roller coaster of the ups and downs of the food, like the sugar highs and lows. Then, in general, you become more regulated. When you become more regulated, your thoughts become slower, and you have more logic open and available to you. And so, you don't the things that usually would cause you anxiety. You may have more capacity to say, "Okay, I know how to deal with that. It's okay. It's not the end of the world." It's not so dangerous. Whereas when you're in a state of being dysregulated, it can feel like a massive mountain that's so overwhelming and I can't deal with it because that's just like the messaging of the nervous system. Um, so again, that regulating foods, there are certain foods you can eat that actually help regulate your body, regulate your nervous system. They nourish your nervous system. So that's huge. Wow. Something that I haven't, you know, I spend a lot of time with the intuitive eating kind of element of things, but not necessarily with, with, the impact that these sorts of foods can have. That is very interesting. So for somebody, because I, I actually know someone closely who struggles a lot with anxiety and also with like this feeling of just like an addiction to, to sugar. That's how they describe it. Um, what do you think the motivation for seeking out that sugar is in the first place so that someone can know then how to deal with overcoming it? There's a few reasons why a person might crave sugar. Um, one of them might be there's literally a nutrition deficiency and the body actually needs complex carbohydrates. Like the body actually needs energy and it's not getting through any other source. So it's sending sugar cravings. Now, a lot of times we misread cravings. A craving for sugar might mean your body needs complex carbohydrates, or it might mean that you're emotionally struggling, like you're in a dysregulated state. Um, the reason why we crave sugar when we're in a dysregulated state is because the way our nervous system works is that we have a regulated state and a dysregulated state. So when your body adapts to survive, what it does is ingeniously, it changes your whole body chemistry to help you try and survive the danger. Mm. One of the things it does is it shuts down any of the internal organs that it doesn't feel are necessary for survival right now and sends all the excess energy to the external parts of your body to help you survive, like your arms and legs to help you run away and have the stamina and the ability to get away from the danger as quickly as you possibly can. Or it will 
send the energy to preserve your heart and your brain so that you can keep alive in the other parts of your organs if they failed you wouldn't necessarily die straight away right so one of the one of the functions that your body shuts down in order to enable you to have more energy to address the danger in front of you is your liver's capacity to turn fat storage into glucose because remember that's what fat storage is fat storage is glucose that's kind of just been put on a shelf for a time that we need more energy right mm-hmm. Now, when you're in a stressed state, you need a ton of, your body thinks you need a ton of energy to run and run away from the danger, right? Keep you safe. And also it now doesn't have any storages. It has no backup plan. The only way it can get the energy it feels it needs is through you eating sugar right now, right? And through eating sugar, because when we eat sugar also, that sugar goes into our bloodstream through the, che- the walls of our mouth, through our cheeks, internal part of our cheeks, it absorbs through the cheeks into the blood directly. Mm. It doesn't actually go into the stomach and digest and then into the intestines and absorbs into the blood like the other parts of the food that we eat. The sugar directly absorbs into the blood through the walls of the cheek. And this is why if somebody's diabetic and they're in, they've, they've passed out because they don't have enough sugar, you can just rub honey in the inside of their cheeks and it will wake them up. Mm. Um, you don't have to get them to swallow anything because in it, when they are unconscious, they anyway can't swallow anything. And um, so this is why when people are stressed, they get very strong sugar cravings. Mm. Also, sometimes when people are stressed, they, they stop wanting to eat. This is another option. Either we eat a lot and we crave sugar a lot or we stop wanting to eat. And this very much depends on whether we're in a sympathetic nervous system state or a dorsal nervous system state. Sympathetic nervous system state is where I still believe there's something I can do to salvage the situation. It comes with more anxiety and a sense of running and impatience and I have to do something now. Whereas the dorsal state is where our nervous system believes it's hopeless. We're done for. There is nothing we can do. We're an absolute victim to the circumstances. And then we go into shutdown and constriction, almost like going into fetal position internally. Um, and then there's just no appetite. So there's like two ends of feeling fear and when our body feels unsafe and um, one of them will create strong sugar cravings and the other will just create no, no appetite at all. Um, So, so coming back to your question is one of the reasons why someone may crave a lot of sugar is because their body is in a sympathetic nervous system state a lot of the time and they don't have the, or have no, or use the tools of regulation and, so they are just running on that energy so much. So that's another reason. There's another reason, which is sometimes we crave sugar just because we're lonely. Like literally mm-hmm. the emotion of loneliness can make people look for self-soothing, which can then make them, um, you know, the sugar actually impacts the brain, like the dopamine and serotonin receptors in the brain. So if I'm feeling really sad um, or lonely or in pain and my go-to it you know, self-soothing is sugar. So then I will also be craving that more. And um, it could also be because I'm tired and that, or I'm thirsty. I like I'm dehydrated. I can crave sugar when I'm dehydrated. And it's really just the body um, being confused between uh, being thirsty and the sugar craving. But if I don't realize that and I just give myself sugar and I don't address the underlying like emotional or physiological issue, then what can happen is this, this cravings continue, continue, continue. But if I actually address the issue and then they, they come and they give me information, that's what cravings are for, give me information to check in with my body and see what my body needs. 
if I just give it the sugar that I think it's asking for, then I don't really address the nutritional issue. I don't really address the emotional issue. I don't really address the regulation issue. Then the cravings will just continue. But if I actually address those issues, the cravings will stop until they come again. And then I can assess what's the issue now, you know, listen in again. Okay. What's happening today? Is there more stress? Am I nutrition? Like, do I need some more complex carbohydrates today? Whatever it might be. So if the issue would be an emotional one, feeling strong emotions of loneliness or fear or stress, which for girls who have just left home, usually there's a lot of those going on, sometimes all at the same time. What would be a way that they can address the underlying issue of or challenge of that difficult emotion instead of turning to outside things like sugar? Okay, so th that's a great question. And this is the reason why I went into psychology rather than nutrition as my primary thing, right? Because again, like if you don't have the tools to know how to deal with these emotions, then of course you're going to turn to whatever you know. You know, you can't expect someone to do better if they don't have better tools or better information or better like, you know, um, modeling, you know. We just do the best we can with the tools we have. And, um, and so... This is, I'll, I'll teach you a great tool that I find to be so helpful and useful. And now loneliness can come because I'm feeling disconnected from the people around me. And loneliness is also because I can feel disconnected from myself and my inner parts. And mostly that is the cause of loneliness because if I feel connected to myself, even if I'm not around other people, I will, st I will not feel I may feel a little lonely, I may miss the company of others, but I won't feel that like deep, deeply dark place of desperation in my loneliness. And also, if I'm with, I can be with so many people and still feel lonely, right? right. We all know that experience, being in a room full of people and feeling so alone. So the internal relationship I have with myself, the internal connection I have with myself is of primary importance if I want to address loneliness. It's not so much about what's going on externally, even though that's a little part to play in it, but much less than we think. Um, and so the first, the first thing is to acknowledge that there are many parts to me. We all have many parts. And in Hasidus, the Alter Rebbe explains that we are all made up of two souls and each soul has got 10 different powers. And each of these powers is a different type of energy inside of us. So to begin with, even on a very superficial level, because then the Alter Rebbe says that we've got five levels of the soul and each mm -hmm. soul has all these 10 powers and each power has the power inside of the other power and so on. But just on a very basic level, you've already got 20 parts right there. Mm -hmm. You know, two souls, 10 parts. This is a lot of parts. There's more, but this is already a lot to start with. Let's just say there's 20. Now, there is the inner children and then there is the inner adult. The inner children is my emotional energy. The parts of me that... Uh, feel, let's say, fear or desire for something. This is two sides of one coin. They're pulling me in one direction or the other direction. And when we, are, when we are born, when we come into this world, one of the things that happens is that we don't know who we are. This, our, our memory is wiped. We don't know that we are a We don't know we're a piece of God. We don't even know what God is on a conscious level. And so we, we feel like this aching emptiness of like, I don't know who I am whether it's conscious or it's unconscious. And this is the beginning of the animal soul consciousness, this perspective of I have to keep myself safe and I have to make sure that I am seen. I have to make sure that I am 
you know, I get everything I need to survive. I'm nurtured. And, um, and so we only know about ourselves through the reflections, through the eyes of others. So if I smile at someone when I'm young and they smile back at me, then I interpret that. I interpret that to mean that I'm safe. I'm good. And if I smile at someone and they don't smile back at me, I interpret that to mean I'm in danger. And then we create all of these like belief systems about safety and danger, right? Because we don't really understand anything about life when we're born. We just make a lot of assumptions. We just, uh, based on what we see, based on how people treat us, based on what we observe, we, we just create like narratives about life. We fill in the gaps basically with assumptions when we don't really know what's going on. And we also assume things that will help us feel safe, like protect us from the worst case scenario. So I may assume that nobody likes me, um, even though that's a very painful thought because it prevents me from feeling the, the sense of rejection when um, I ask someone if they want to play with me and they say no. So I don't want to feel that pain of rejection. I don't know what to do with it. So I just say nobody likes me and I don't bother asking anyone to play with me. It's, so it's like a self-preservation. It's a way of protecting myself from rejection. And also at the same time, it's isolating me. So my, my, my defense mechanisms get in the way of me living fully, although they also keep me small and safe. Mm. And we all develop our own version of what those look like. Um, they become very subconscious, belief systems about life and narratives about life, stories that we tell ourselves about what other people think and what other people are doing and who we are and our value and our worth. And this becomes like the glasses or the window that we are looking, looking at the world through and interpreting the world through until we become aware that we're actually looking through a particular lens and that this lens may not actually be as accurate as we think. Um, and we can start poking holes in its logic. But until then, we actually fully believe it. Like this is the truth. And if someone tells us anything different, we feel extremely invalidated or we actually think that they are wrong. Um, and and so, so this is... This is our starting point in life. Are these beliefs protecting us from difficult emotions? Is that what they do? Mm -hmm. So it's not even necessarily protecting us from danger, but just from difficult emotions. Well, our, our, our nervous system interprets difficult emotions to be dangerous because it, it associates pain with danger. And even though physical pain sometimes can be dangerous, and even emotional pain can sometimes lead to dangerous things for people. Like, for example, um, let's say somebody has an experience of when their father starts shouting, he then also starts hitting them. Hmm. So in their mind, they, create, they associate like anger with danger, right? Now, we all have different life stories. So our, our belief systems end up and are slightly different. Everybody has them. But the thing is, is that we definitely associate pain with danger or feeling uncomfortable with danger. And so one of our main drivers from that perspective becomes avoidance of pain. To do everything I possibly can to avoid feeling pain. Often my avoidance of pain causes more pain, different types of pain. And then we end up in a loop of like, or like an impossible position of always trying to get away from pain and just finding more and more of it. And it's extremely painful. But what, what coming back to this point of what we were saying is that we have to, first of all, identify and become aware of our belief systems and the little parts of ourselves internally that are that are in pain and trying to protect us from pain. So we end up with our vulnerable parts. Our vulnerable parts are the parts that just feel very alone or very abandoned or very scared, terrified, um, very um, confused and um, in pain. And then we have our defenders and our defenders, let's say I have a vulnerable part that says, I feel so, so alone. And I feel like so um, 
so disconnected from reality and there's so much pain that comes with that. And then I have a defender that says, that's, you're so needy, like, stop being so ridiculous. You know, because maybe when I was a child, I felt so much pain and I went to someone for soothing and they pushed me away and that hurt even more. So I decided that going to someone for soothing is ridiculous. That keeps me safe from going to someone for soothing, right? Mm -hmm. And also then I start hating the part of myself that feels that lonely because I blame her for my pain. Like stop being so needy, right? And stop looking for attention. What's wrong with you? And we don't Mm -hmm. realize it's an authentic need that needs to be addressed. And this is where we start then judging ourselves and creating this like self-hate internal parts of us start fighting with each other. They have different interests. They're trying to protect us in very different ways. And this is, I think, what I was very stuck in when I was explaining about my eating disorder and the amount of self-hate I had is that I had parts of me that I couldn't stand and I was trying to control them and it was just not working. I was like trying to stop myself from feeling certain things, but you can't stop yourself from feeling certain things ever hard you try. So I was getting angry with myself for feeling them and angry with myself for the the experience I was having. And this was just like a cycle that gets, it can get very, very dark and it doesn't get us anywhere. What we need to learn to do is bring, those are like all of our inner children that are, can start fighting with each other. We need to bring the adult into the room. What it means to bring the adult into the room is that I have to learn to actually relate to those inner parts from my Chabad or from my prefrontal cortex function. And the, the thing about our prefrontal cortex is that it's not emotional. It is, right, our emotions are in the emotional center of our heart. But the prefrontal cortex is, first of all, the capacity to get curious. Mm. What's going on? What is this? With absolutely no story or narrative or judgment on the parts, just I want to get to know you. What are you saying to me? It's so interesting. You're here. Like coming from a place of curiosity and interest. And then and, and the, the das is the aspect, which is the ability to be self-aware and focus our attention and with, with compassion, which is das as a source of compassion, on, on those parts of myself, to be able to dialogue with them. And the bina aspect is really important to, to once, you, once you create a connection with those parts, like with any child, if you want to have any influence over a child, you first have to create connection with them. Trying, trying to tell a child how to behave when you have zero connection with them isn't really going to get so far. So the same thing with our inner worlds. We have to create connection first with our inner children. And then we can influence them slowly by asking them deeper questions. If, for example, I have an inner child that's saying, you're a failure, you're a failure, you're an absolute failure, you're a waste of space. I first need to connect to that part. And then I can question it. Well, what is your definition of a failure? So let's, I'll model for you what that could look like. So mm. Let's say I have this part that feels like a failure inside of me. And it's like in the back of my head, I hear it's just saying, like, you're such a failure. How could you possibly have done that? You're such an idiot. Like, you just always mess things up. And it's just this, the voice in the back of my head. If I notice, first of all, where in my body do I feel that feeling? I may notice a place. I may not. I may think it's, feel it in the back of my head. I may feel it in my chest. Let's just say for this example, I feel it in my chest. So the failure would be the feeling? So now... Yeah, yeah okay. it's like the inner child, that the voice, it's the energy behind the voice, which is mm-hmm. like that feeling of defeat and that sadness, which I might feel in my chest. And if I focus my attention on it, I can notice how strong is this feeling from a scale of zero to 10. Um, and it may be an eight or a nine, it may be very strong, right? So I just observe it for a while. I can also notice how much space it takes up. Does it travel all the way up my neck? Does it go all the way down to my diaphragm? Or is it just in the center? How big does it feel? 
So once I identify it, this is already me starting to see it. This is already me starting to validate it. Really seeing something is validating it, really being present with it. So this is the beginning. Then I then I just feel allow myself to feel the feeling and exhale slowly because this allows it to our bodies to calm down in the face of this feeling. This feeling is not dangerous. It's just a feeling. There's no reason to be afraid of the feeling. Um, if we know this, if we don't know this, then we're afraid of feeling the pain because we don't know what, what's going to happen next. The unknown is very feels very dangerous to us. But then you focus your attention on it and you can ask it, you know, I'd love to hear you and tell me about yourself. I'd love to listen. This is bringing your prefrontal cortex in and asking the the feeling what it wants to say. And you allow the feeling to just talk in your head or you can say out loud or you can write it on paper, whatever works for you. And let's say I'll, you know, so the feeling might say, I'm so, I'm, I feel like such a failure. I feel so awful. I feel like so disgusted with myself. I never do anything right. I always make these mistakes and then I just, my life's going down the drain. And then after like a few like a little bit of time of it talking, you just reflect that back. So you, in your mind, you say, so you feel like an absolute failure. You feel like your life's going down the drain. You feel like everything is going crazy. Like you're completely, right? you just, whatever you just said, you just say it back. And then you ask, did I get it? And if the little voice inside of you says, or feels like a sense of like relief, it will say like, yeah. Then you say, is there more? And then you listen again. And you listen and listen and listen until it feels like it. you get to the place of, is there more? And the answer is no, there is no more. There's another way of doing this, which is just listening without stopping to feedback, but just really feeling the energy in the body and how it's moving. This is a little bit more um, complex or tricky. You have to know how to feel energies um, to or have the capacity to really notice how those feelings move in your body. Mm. By just practice, you get better at it. But this is a good starting place just to be able to do, learn how to do this dialogue where you listen, you reflect it back, you ask is there more. And then after that, you validate it. Validating it basically doesn't mean you're telling it that it's right because you may also have parts of you that disagree with it. You may have defenders that say, actually, why are you so like, why are you, why are you stuck on being a failure? Like, just get on with life. Like, you should just be able to just do stuff. Like, it's your fault that you did x y and z just do something differently you know why why are you acting this way <laughs> we have our defenders can be very mean to each other right so <laughs> i could have another part and that the part inside of me might be saying you know i i hate her and you can also turn your attention to that part and say i'll speak to you in a minute you know what you have to say is important but right now i'm just finishing talking to this voice and and then you validate it by saying you know if i was in your shoes if i had the perspective of life that you have i would feel the same way as you feel and what you're feeling makes sense understand you and when we really when that part of us really feels heard and seen there will be a sense of relief or lightness that you'll feel in your body as a result of having that dialogue if you don't feel a sense of relief or lightness that means there is more that means there is more so you go back and you say what what is the more what is still there what's uncomfortable and you listen in and you hear what it is um and so and then you continue again validating it until it feels like a sense of lightness once that happens, once there is that sense of lightness, what that means is that it's a sense of internal connection. You can also offer that part a hug, give it a hug. And notice what it feels like to feel like you are hugging and holding that internal part of you that feels so much pain. When you've done that, there is a sense of, I'm holding that part of myself. I'm working together with that part of myself now. And then I can ask a deeper question. Well, can we have a conversation about this? What, what is your definition of failure? And who decides what is a failure and what isn't a failure in life? Like who who made the rules? 
And do you ascribe to those rules? And why do you ascribe to those rules? You know, and what do you really think life is all about? And who am I really? And what is, and you can start to think about, and sometimes you may not have answers to these questions. Sometimes you do intuitively. Sometimes you may need to learn more. Sometimes you may just say, you know what? It's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I'm going to start thinking about that. And so it already starts to create a question mark or poke a hole in the definitive like belief systems that we really believe until we look at them and say, huh, hold on a second. Is it really true that this mistake that I made defines me and slaps me with a label of you are a failure? You know, is it really true? What even is a failure? Is it, you know, does that mean that everything, everything wonderful I've ever done in my whole life is irrelevant because I did this one mistake? I need to think about that. We need to, we need to like understand why this part of me is so invested in focusing on this one mistake that I made and labeling me this way. It obviously feels terrified of the mistake I made. And we need to like, get, you know, that, then have a dialogue about what are you so afraid of um, and feel the grief or the pain of I'm scared of being rejected. I'm so afraid of rejection. Of course you are. It completely makes sense to me that you're afraid of rejection. I understand that. That's the validating, you know, after mm. hearing it. And the more we do that, the more we make those internal connections with ourselves. And when we do that, we feel less lonely. Being able to be present with our loneliness and just, I'm with you, loneliness. I understand you. I, I get that this is painful. It makes a world of difference. I feel like this is, when I'm thinking about doing this practically, that it takes a certain level of bravery and maturity to be able to have this conversation with yourself because I'm remembering what you said earlier that our body interprets uncomfortable feelings as danger and so how mm -hmm. can we allow ourselves to let these difficult emotions speak if there's a part of us that's saying well this is obviously going to be a very uncomfortable experience maybe even painful so we should just avoid it as you said distract ourselves run away which is what we tend to naturally do how can we get in a space where we're right. open for this type of conversation so we need to learn some tools and feeling more comfortable inside of our own skin first um the the our body is us is our safe container our body is our sacred home and when I don't feel comfortable inside of my own skin, then I basically feel terrified of everything in life. There's no safe place for my soul to rest. There's no safe place for me to just kind of sink into, into myself and feel held, right? Mm. Unless I have someone externally who can do that for me, which is a gift, but not everybody has that. And even if I do have that externally, if I don't have it inside of my own skin, I can have someone who's holding me and still feel uncomfortable inside of my own skin, right? And still feel extra vulnerable when I move away from that position or that person or whatever but but basically what I need to do is I need to start learning how to feel comfortable inside of my body so first of all to ask the question where in my body do I feel comfortable right now to do a body scan you know just to, how do my feet feel how do my feet feel in this present moment and to focus your attention on your feet and breathe exhale slowly like as if you're going through a straw humming and focus on those exhales to really, really elongate them and slow them down because this brings online your parasympathetic nervous system state, which will help you feel more comfortable inside of your own skin. And to focus your attention on your feet until your feet, like notice what your feet feel like, if the feet, feet feel comfortable, uncomfortable. You don't have to make them feel anything, but just notice. Then move to your ankles, move to your calves, 
And slowly, slowly to be able to notice what it feels like to be present in your body. Um, after practicing that for a while, you'll start noticing sometimes there are parts of your body that feel uncomfortable. Sometimes there are parts of your body that feel comfortable. Sometimes they're both there together. And the more you're able to have an anchor, an anchor means a, um, a physical experience in the present of being present, um, being comfortable inside of a, a part of your body, then you're already giving yourself a sense of being held or sense of safety. So for example, if I'm sitting on a couch and I notice what it feels like for my head to rest against the pillow, and I notice if it's relaxed and if it feels held by my by the pillow, that experience is already giving my body a sense of being held. Anything that brings me into the present, so as I'm walking down the street and if I feel every time I put my foot on the floor and I just um, press it down and I feel like my foot's being connected now with the ground, that sense can also feel comforting. Or if I just allow the sun to shine on my face, that can also feel soothing. So it's a matter of finding those things that help you feel comfortable inside of your own body, a sense of lightness or pleasure inside of your body. If it's, and once you have a few of those anchors, and there are many ways of making anchors, another good idea is to imagine yourself being held by something so much greater than yourself. And you can imagine what that is. You can imagine yourself being held by the sun or by the sky or by um, a tree or by God, if you have that kind of relationship with God, or um, anything that or a person, um, if there's someone that you trust, like a mother figure in your life, imagine yourself just being held by them. This can also bring a deep sense of soothing into your body. But once you find how and you figure out how to do that, once you have that re relationship with your body that you know how to regulate it, you know how to give it that sense of peace and pleasure, um, which feels just a little bit like that deep relaxation a person might feel just before they fall asleep if they're having a peaceful sleep, not if they're anxious, right? That mm -hmm. like deep sense of peace internally. Um, I think the first time I, I had a reference point for that was that when I was a little child, I used to suck my fingers and I had like a comfort blanket. I remember that sense. It was just such a sweet sense of pleasure. When I stopped sucking my fingers and there was nowhere else in my life I ever had that pleasure and still I started learning how to regulate my nervous system. And I was like, oh, wow, like this is that same feeling that I used to feel when I stuck my fingers. And I, I just was like amazing to me that I, you know, there wasn't a time in between that I had figured out how to bring myself back into that state of, of peace. And um, so, so we need to learn how to do that. There are a lot of um, great techniques that once we practice them and we get good at them, we then can create the, that We, once we have the skill, we have the skill, right? Mm. Once I have that skill and I know that I can make my body feel comfortable, then I have the capacity to go and visit uncomfortable feelings and know that I can hold them. So like I feel, feel grief, let's say in my chest, but I can also feel grounded in my feet and I can feel relaxed in my shoulders whilst I'm holding my grief. So there's a sense of this is, this is a part of me that's feeling pain. It's not going to completely overwhelm me. It's contained within me. It's like that child is sitting on my lap and crying, but I'm the mother and I can hold it. Mm. Um, I can learn how to do that with myself. Um, but it, it, a lot of the work has to do with understanding how to ground and regulate in the nervous system um, so that I have that capacity and build my capacity for that. So, so to be able to truly tell our bodies that we're safe so that we can invite in things that feel maybe unsafe because we know that we have space for them and that it's not going to take over. 
your body doesn't understand when you tell it that it's safe. It only understands when you show it that it's safe. That's the key. Because mm, okay. telling yourself, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe, isn't going to do much for your body's sense of safety. It's not going to necessarily make you feel safe. But like a lot of people have fears. Let's say of going on an airplane and they go on the airplane and they say, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. But their heart is still pounding hugely. Right. And they're feeling like, you know, the anxiety running through their body. And telling themselves they're safe isn't necessarily going to help. Some people find it's helpful, but not necessarily. What does help your body is when you show it that it's safe. And showing it that it's safe is only done through the body and the breath. Like relaxing the muscles and exhaling slowly gives the body the message that actually we can move into a parasympathetic state now. It's okay. Like feeling my feet on the floor, focusing my attention on parts of my body and and choosing to open and relax them. Um, Soothing myself by stroking my arm or smelling a smell that feels comforting to me. Or looking at having the sunshine on my face or looking at a beautiful flower and noticing all the details of it in this moment. These are the kind of listening to soothing sounds. Through the senses, we can give the body information that we are safe. But a logical thought isn't necessarily going to tell my body that it's safe. How can we find these anchors that work for us? Because for one person, it might be the best thing and someone else might say, like, absolutely not. You know, I'm not going to smell a flower. So how can we... How can we find what works for us? We got to experiment with different things, like become a scientist for yourself, like recognize, okay, this is interesting. I need to find some things that help my body feel regulated. There are many ideas. You can just look online and find out all the like different regulation techniques. For example, you can line your back and put your legs up a wall. That can help a lot of people find that standing on their heads, doing yoga, um, putting music on and dancing, crying, having a good cry, but a, a regular like a, when I say a good cry there's two different types of crying there's the crying where it's like you're railing against yourself like in self-hate or disgust and there's the crying where you're just saying yeah I feel sad and you have compassion on yourself that can really help us regulate ourselves the the crying with the self-hate doesn't necessarily help us regulate so it's not the crying that necessarily helps it's the allowing of the emotion to flow mm. having this kind of dialogue with ourselves where we actually feel where I'm feeling the feeling in my you know, in my chest, rating it, listening, reflecting back, like I just um, explained to you earlier, can also be very regulating. Um, and and what I would suggest for anyone who wants to know or go embark on this journey is to explore. Try different things. Notice how they make your body feel. Check in with yourself. Notice how how useful it feels. Also know that, that this is a practice, which means that in the beginning, you may find it's interesting, but you may say, yeah, I enjoy lying on my back with my legs up against the wall. But when I'm feeling really, really sad, it's not so helpful for me. So this is something to just bear in mind. Like this is this is an interesting regulation technique for me. It helps my body feel better. But also I may need to practice it a little bit more until my body actually like acclimates to this experience. Um practicing means doing it a whole bunch of times and seeing what happens every time might be something different. And also when you get better at stuff, for example, the dialogue that I just um, explained to you before, it's, it's a learning curve. Mm. I may in the beginning feel like I don't really know what I'm doing. It's like, what, what do I say next? But until I get into the flow of it and I really, really um, get it, what I'm doing, I may not feel the benefits of it. So also with smelling, um, let's say essential oils, one time I may smell something and it might be, I don't know. But another time I might smell something and be like, yeah, actually, that really helped my body relax. That's interesting. So so it's it's a matter of not giving up too quickly. 
Hmm. It's a matter of practicing a whole bunch of different things and seeing what works for you. And a matter of just using those tools again and again, and, and you'll start noticing the stuff that sticks. You'll notice the ones that you like the best. You'll notice the ones that work for you the quickest. Over experimenting, you'll learn this yourself because no one can really tell you. You can get suggestions from people of try this, try that, but you've got to try it to see if it works for you. So what I'm hearing from, you know, dealing with these difficult emotions is allowing yourself to feel held and safe to allow these emotions to actually express themselves until they're fully kind of let out so that they so that that intensity can kind of maybe lessen or you can be able to hold it. Um, and you've given us some really great tips for that. Uh, my question is, are there ever times where we're feeling a difficult emotion and the right thing to do would be to distract? Or would you say that distraction, which is naturally what we tend to do when difficult emotions come up, um, is always a negative when it comes to allowing ourselves to overcome these difficult emotions? So it depends what you mean by distract, because there are two different forms of distractions. Let's say I'm feeling an emotion, I say a lot of grief, right? There's two ways I can go about this. One is I can just go through my, my, my go to my natural self-soothing techniques, which is eat or scroll through my phone or whatever else might be on my agenda. Or I can choose to do a regulation technique, which would be, let's say, sometimes taking a shower can be a regulation technique. We're doing some physical exercise, running off some adrenaline, going for a run, going to the park and sitting in the sun. And it, neither, none of these things need to be directly addressing the grief, but they're also nurturing me on some level to, to turn inward and say, this, this, is, this emotion is giving me information, then I need to do some self-care. I need to, I need to take care of myself a little bit. And that, for, you know, for some people can say, well, that's also a distraction, but that's actually a distraction that is bringing you closer to yourself, that when you do feel more regulated, you'll be able to address the underlying pain better it's not running away from the emotion and just it's actually regulating so that I can then think about what I want to do about it in a more productive way or choosing to go meet it and have a dialogue with it once I feel more regulated. You don't have to face every emotion when it comes up, especially especially if you don't feel safe enough to do so and you need to first um, ground in your body and give yourself that permission to feel comfortable inside of your own skin before you address the difficult emotions. So would, would the first two examples you gave of eating and scrolling on your phone be what you say the first type that's ne not necessarily as helpful? Or would they all fall under this category? No, so the thing is, is about the eating or the scrolling on the phone. Neither of those things really nourish us deeply. Mm. They just take us into like a holding space where we're like frozen. So I'm not feeling myself not feeling anything, but as soon as they stop scrolling, as soon as I'm done eating that chocolate cake, those those emotions come straight back. They're, they're right there under the surface. This is like a plaster. Whereas if I go and take a shower or I go for a run or I um, do something for myself, like do, do some painting or turn some music on and just listen to some music and connect with myself, like with compassion, you know, this is really hard for whatever reason I'm going through this thing and I get to know parts of myself um, and to just relax in my body, to breathe. What I'm actually doing is I'm creating deeper connections, which actually 
then don't temporarily soothe my pain, but actually resolve the issue, which is my feelings of disconnection from myself. Hmm. So the so like going on your phone would be like running away from yourself and taking a shower, let's say, would be reconnecting with yourself to allow that at some point you're able to address these yeah. things. Very interesting. Right, right. I find that the phone is <laughs> when I'm feeling something uncomfortable. It used to be food, actually, for me. And then I um, worked a lot mm-hmm. of my relationship with food. So now food doesn't have that appeal unless I have something like really good in the house. Um, and so now my phone has taken that place. Um, and yeah, I don't usually feel any better after that. So it's right. helpful to know that there you don't have to always face the emotion. Um, but there are more productive ways to be able to deal with it in the moment that include and involve self-care. So that's really, that's really helpful to know. Right. And also something that I find to be super helpful for myself, which is a quick and easy thing to do is to recognize if I'm, let's say, reaching for my phone to acknowledge to myself, what is the feeling I'm feeling right now that I don't want to feel? Hmm. And to just take a moment to acknowledge what it is. So whether it's grief or sadness or pain and just to acknowledge it like, wow, I really am feeling so much terror right now. So interesting. Or, wow, I really am feeling so much shame or yeah, gosh. And like, just place my hand on the part of my body that feels it and just like gently just stroke it and just, uh, just be present with it for a few seconds. And then after that, like you could tell yourself, like when I'm done that, if I want to go on my phone, I want to eat that food no problem go ahead and do it but most of the time the urge the urge to do so is gone once you mm. do that it literally just dissipates once you acknowledge it you don't even have to go into it in more detail just like wow i really am so so stressed just take a deep breath <sighs> yeah it doesn't always work because sometimes the emotions are so deep and there's so many layers to them and there's so many defenders on top of them and there's a lot of inner children that are arguing with each other and if that's the case, needs to be like re- like the inner world needs to be reorganized. You need to probably go work with a therapist for a while to see how to, to learn how to communicate with your inner children and understand your own defenders and make relationships with them and so on. But but if it's just something that, you know, I already have that kind of connection with myself, then this this is enough. So I end off with a theoretical question, which is that if you had a time machine to take you back to the first year that you were living on your own, whether that was seminary or straight into marriage, whatever that was for you, and you were able to share with yourself only one thing, what would be the one thing that you would share with yourself? How do you define that? Because at the age of 11, I was not living at home during the week, but I went home every Shabbos. Mm. Does that mean I was living alone? Yeah, well, technically, that would be living (laughs) away from home. That's very young. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so it could be even to your 11 year self that I'd left living with the family. Yeah, so I, because my family, I grew grew up on Shlechas and we didn't live near the Jewish high school. Wow. So when I went into high school at the age of 11, in England, we go into high school at the age of 11. Really? I lived with a family during the week and I just went to the Shabbos. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What I would tell my 11-year-old self. Do you know what? I'm thinking about it now. I. It's such a great question. Um, 
I don't think I would tell her anything more than I would go back and connect with her. Like I, I like have this image of sit, her sitting on her bed in in her room. I would go and sit on the bed with her and just put my arm around her and just be there, just mm. be present. That, that's just what I would do. I think, I think, um, you know, she was just so lonely and I just needed the presence of someone who I knew and trusted, cared yeah. about me. And I would go back and be that for her, just be present for her without telling her advice or telling her it's going to be okay or it wasn't going to be okay. <laughs> like she was going to go through years of hell, right? Yeah. But to have the presence of someone yeah. with us when we go through hell makes all the difference. We don't, we can't remove painful experiences from our lives a lot of the time. But when we have someone supporting us through them, this is what enables us to grow. This is what enables us to come through the other end. This is what enables us to um, learn from the experiences when we're completely alone. It's so, so much harder. It's so much harder. And, and I think that's also with ourselves when we are split internally. And there's vulnerable parts inside of us that are so abandoned and alone from the other parts of us that are like pushing us to be and act in certain ways, then that disconnect creates so much pain and loneliness that sometimes all we need is just the compassion, the presence, um, the capacity to know that there is another human being or another part of me that is my biggest fan and is just going to be present there, seeing, cheering me on as I go through all of my mistakes and my falls and being there to rub my knees and hold me when I need to cry and just saying, I believe in you. It's going to be like, it's going to be okay. But even not saying those words, it's going to be okay. Just the energy of I'm, I trust, you know, that that's the energy of just being present and, um, and solid in in the nervous system state of regulation. Like I'm not afraid Mm -hmm. I'm with you. That's, that's the energy of it. And at 11, I don't think that, We'd probably be able to do that without an adult. But as we get older, we can learn how to be that for ourselves is what I'm hearing, is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And now as an adult, I can hold my 11-year-old self on my lap and I can hug her. Um, And that feels healing for my 11-year-old self. Yeah. I'm getting emotional. Even though she didn't have that then. Yeah, 11 yeah. is really young. Like I left home at 15 and I thought, oh my gosh, there's no younger than that. And I interviewed someone who was 13 when she left home. And that was like, oh my gosh, that's like mm. too much. 11 is really young. I don't even remember myself at 11, to be honest. I'm yeah, yeah. really, I'm not even that old at all. So, wow. Yeah. yeah, to be able to go back there and be And I was a very young 11. Oh, yeah. My birthday was in August. So like I had just turned 11. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that is. So for all of those girls who are 18 and feeling (laughs) that they're on their own for the first time, maybe this can help them a little bit, feel a little better. You're not 11. And there is a part of you you can kind of reach into and tap into that can be that adult there for you. Wow. Thank you very much, Dvari. This was very, very powerful and helpful. I I learned a lot of things for myself as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of On Your Own. If you like this episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I would love to connect with you. If you've got any questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at onyourownpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. And in the meantime, happy adulting. Happy adulting.